Welcome friends, this is James Corbett, CorbettReport.com. It's the 28th of April, 2014, here in the land of the rising sun. And today I'm joined on the line from the United States, I believe, yes. but I don't really yes. know where, by Pierce Redmond of Porkins Policy Review. And he has one of those unwieldy uh, uh, URLs, PorkinsPolicyReview.wordpress.com. Perhaps the best thing to do is to go to the show notes on CorbettReport.com and there will be a link to his website from there. Pierce, it's great to have you on the program today. Thanks for joining us. Oh, absolutely, James. I'm uh, just thrilled and excited that you asked me to come on the show. Well, it's great to have you here. It really is, because uh, as I was kind of mystified to find for myself, this is the first time you've been on. I I, had, <laughs> I, I realize we have talked before, but that was me being on your program. So this will be your yes. first time on the Corbett Report. So perhaps you can fill us in about yourself, uh, where you come from, what you're doing, and uh, what Porkins Policy Review is all about. Sure. Um, yes, I am from the United States. I live in, in New York City. Um, and I started the website, uh, I want to say maybe two years ago, something like that. Uh, and it, originally it was just a blog where I put up stuff, um, geopolitical things. Uh, I did sort of delve into party politics uh, for a little while until I kind of... <laughs> Got rid of that whole idea, and uh, and then I started doing the podcast um, mainly in part to to you, James, and the work that you were doing. And I remember listening to an episode of uh, your radio show when you still had it, and you you talked all about how to to start a podcast and what kind of equipment to use. And if a little while after listening to that, I purchased an Audio Technica 2020 mic, which I think is what you were using at the time, and I downloaded Audacity and I figured out how to use it. And I, I started recording podcasts, um, and it's on a you know a whole bunch of different issues, a lot of geopolitical things, uh, terrorism. Uh, but we, you know, I, I do try to delve into some other topics as well. Absolutely. Well, nothing can make me happier than to hear that I had a role in in helping anyone to get started in this, let alone someone like yourself. And I, I don't say this for any for any reason uh, except for the fact that it's the truth. I really do appreciate your podcast. For people who aren't subscribed to it, I suggest that they do so. Uh, you've had some really excellent investigative reports on on all sorts of different uh, geopolitical subjects recently, and I really am getting a lot out of the podcast. So I will direct people to towards it. And once again, that will be linked up in the show notes so that you can go and subscribe for your but uh, today I want to pick up from something that you've been talking about recently on your podcast, and that's, uh, well, I don't want to just say Africa, because again, it's yeah. very easy yeah. and uh, for people to just elide over all of the extremely different situations in Africa by just calling it Africa. It's just one big mm. continent, one big hodgepodge, and we don't have to worry about it other than as, as one big cohesive whole, and of course it's not like that. However, given the fact that it is approached by the great imperial powers of our own day and age as a type of, uh, well, I guess resource-rich resource, uh, resource -rich area that can be looked at as that kind of homogenous political entity, then they, I think there is a strategy that is used for uh, basically trying to get uh, the, the hooks of European and, of course, uh, American uh, interests in there as well. And, of course, China and Russia also play their own mm. role in, uh, and increasingly China, in, in Africa as well. So let's talk a little bit about African um, f foreign policy of the United States and other countries towards Africa and how that plays out in terms of the, the dividing up of the continent. And there are many different ways to talk about this, but I guess one particular angle on this is that we've just crossed over the 20th anniversary of the Rwandan genocide. And as you were just pointing out in a very interesting conversation with Keith Harmon Snow on your podcast... Our traditional, the, the, the sort of narrative that's developed about what happened in Rwanda is 
not at all very uh, reflective of the reality of what happened on the ground there. So perhaps yeah. we can start from there and talk a little bit about what really happened there and the role that the the outside powers had in in shaping what that conflict. Mm, yeah. Well, I'll try and I'll try and give the the kind of stripped down version because uh, it is extremely complicated and complex and that that podcast was much longer than my usual ones are but uh, I mean essentially we get this narrative that is uh, presented to us here in the West and especially in America that this is some sort of uh, inter-ethnic conflict between the Hutu and the Tutsi and the, we're told that these are essentially ethnic groups and, and to a degree that is true but more importantly these are, are political Groups. These are um, uh, these are not you know, the kind of uh, interethnic violence that we see in other places, say like Afghanistan. These are really political groups, and uh, a Hutu could become a Tutsi. That that was not. Uh, it was somewhat uncommon, but it could happen in theory. But essentially, we're presented with this uh, idea that the Tutsis were this persecuted minority uh, that had been. You know, this was a persecution that went on for centuries, and uh, more or less, uh, the Hutus, these extremist Hutus, we're always t hearing about these extremist Hutus, uh, they decided uh, to kill their extremist Hutu president, Juvenal Javier Mana, uh, while he was flying in a plane, and set off this chain reaction in which thousands and thousands of Hutu men and women decided to butcher all of the Tutsis uh, within Rwanda over this epic 100 days that, that is always, you know, uh, berated into us uh, around the 20th anniversary. And, uh, and more or less that the outcome of this, the, the violence was stopped when uh, the, the Shining Knight, Paul Kagame, uh, marched in with the Rwandan Patriotic Front and put an end to this violence and then soon became the leader of Rwanda and then, uh, you know, sort of skipping over Lots of the details there were, were presented again with this very rosy picture of Rwanda right now. It's seen as very open and, uh, you know, quote, progressive, whatever that word really means. And it, it's wonderful for investment. It's very safe. And uh, they make a very big point of dissuading any sort of talk about uh, racial violence or, or things of that nature. Um, now, the reality of that is, uh, you know, markedly different. And uh, in actuality, of course, the Tutsi were the uh, the power elite within Rwanda. This is something that existed for centuries. Um, they used their power, uh, their their economic power, to control the Hutu people, and essentially ruled very brutally uh, under a, a Tutsi monarchy. Essentially, is is what operated there. And this went on for, like I said, centuries and centuries. And this is uh, you know well documented if you, if you really look for it. And uh, in the 1950s and 60s, with the sort of birth of the, the anti-colonialist movement all over the world, but uh, particularly in Africa, the Hutus eventually overthrew the, the, the Tutsi elite, and uh, many of these Tutsis fled to neighboring countries like Tanzania, or um, more, more likely they flew, uh, fled rather to Uganda. And this is where the, the Tutsi exile community, which is where, uh, you know, Paul Kagame was uh, born in Rwanda. And when he was maybe, I don't know, one or two, he his family left. And he grew up uh, most of his life in Uganda. And this is where he um, 
got involved with people like Museveni, who is the dictator uh, in Uganda right now, and he, uh, you know, learned how to fight under him. He was his in intelligence chief. But to, to make a long story short, uh, basically the Tutsi created in the uh, the media, in the the non-aligned movement uh, throughout the you know what we call the third world as as the, the Jews of Africa, you know, names such as that. And they essentially uh, were able to commit atrocious acts all throughout the, the 60s and 70s and uh, into the 80s. And then in the 90s, they actually uh, invaded Rwanda from Uganda. And they used false flag techniques such as butchering whole entire villages and then calling the press and bringing them there and telling them that these were Hutus who had done this. And of course, um, you know, butchering all of these people got uh, Habir Mana and his government very upset. And of course, they w there would be reprisals. And uh, this, you know, sort of created this, this attention and this huge problem that the international community decided to stick their nose into. So the real truth behind Rwanda uh, is that really this was... Um, orchestrated by the Tutsis with the backing of the United States and the United Kingdom as well as Israel to a lesser extent and they were able to essentially uh, fool the entire world into believing that 800,000 Tutsis were massacred when in reality those were mostly Hutus and of course Tutsis were killed as well Paul Kagame uh, you know does not care whatsoever about Tutsis and he especially doesn't care about the Tutsis who stayed in Rwanda who were seen as traitors and uh, essentially this helped to solidify American power in Central Africa which is really what the Rwandan genocide is about and more importantly and more broadly speaking this helped to consolidate power in Eastern Congo which is uh, the heart of Africa and you know all uh, I when I talked to Aaron Franz I, I I told him there's a saying that Africa is a gun and the trigger is Congo. So whatever happens in Congo emanates out, and all countries in Africa and around the world are very, very deeply involved in the plunder and rape uh, in Eastern Congo. Well, let's talk a little bit about the mechanics of how that plunder and rape works. Because, for example, in the Rwandan part of it, um, as you mentioned, the, the, there was really an invasion of the country from 1990. And it is from that 1990 to 1994 period that uh, the, 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 the growth in the debt of the Rwandan government um, started to take on a new tenor. And uh, debt contraction with the IMF and other international agencies started to, to really um, escalate. So this is something that was really fostered as part of an inter uh, through an international network that that was mm. taking a direct role in events there um how does that play out in in africa generally and in places like the congo um in particular with with these international organizations and supporting these types of conflicts mm. no you're you're absolutely correct uh groups like the imf and the world bank uh, particularly imf and rwanda um fueled both sides of the conflict so they you know, enforced these, you know, just ridiculous uh, economic requirements like they're doing all over the world right now on various countries, forced those upon the government of Habir Mana, uh, while at the same time they were flooding Uganda with, with money as well, and that money, of course, was siphoned off and went to uh, fund Kagame's uh, military, uh, you know, um, military movement. But basically, uh, you know, these international groups, um, they, they come in, 
they you know they, they fund certain actors for certain elements and things like that but essentially this is all cover and uh, you know what they're really doing is is setting up various uh, companies and things like that that are then able to extract this money uh, be it diamonds, be it uranium, uh, a host of their, you know, everything you could imagine, coal, timber, uh, more and more water is becoming a, a big issue there. Uh, but they're able to essentially, under the cover of aid or development or whatever euphemism they use, they go in, they, they set up these, uh, you know, things, Banro Gold Company is a big one, there are lots of these things. Uh, but basically, essentially, they're, they're taking all of the wealth out of that, uh, people are treated more or less like slaves. I mean, they're not paid on any of these places. And they also go towards funding the uh, rebel movements that are all over there. The rebel movements are, are used by these big international corporations and, and businesses as well to provide security. And essentially then all of this money gets extracted out of the Congo, and most of it ends up uh, you know, in, in things like Swiss bank accounts. Uh, but a lot of this money also ends up in Rwanda and Uganda, which are the, the biggest African beneficiaries of the plunder that's going on uh, all over Africa, but particularly in East Africa. What role does Uganda play in in this uh, in this geopolitical puzzle? Because it is interesting that we saw, for example, in recent years, the whole uh, Kony boogeyman uh, charade that was that was played out a couple oh, yeah. of years ago as a way of bolstering and fostering the American military ties to Uganda and Ugandan dictator Museveni. And it, it, with regards to that, it's interesting that recently we we just saw um, the U.S. government is now officially reviewing its relationship with the Ugandan government because they have passed a, a new law imposing harsh penalties on homosexuality, mm. which, uh, again, I yeah. think when that card is raised, it's only ever raised for geopolitical purposes. It has mm. nothing to do with any concern over the people of Uganda. So, so what role does Uganda play in this? Uganda uh, plays uh, one of the primary uh, roles as an enforcer for... Uh, the West and for America in particular in Africa. The other major country would probably be Ethiopia. But uh, I, I kind of see Uganda as, as really kind of taking the reins over that. But essentially, Uganda uh, is uh, an American colony or, or an American proxy force there. They, they act as the enforcer all over Africa, but particularly in that region. So we're talking about Congo, we're talking a lot about Sudan, Somalia, uh, everywhere, but basically, you you've got Museveni, who was uh, you know groomed as a as a as a Western puppet, and was funded by the United States and and uh, the UK as well, and uh, we helped put him in power essentially, and then once he's in power, we helped to consolidate that power within Uganda, and from there, we're able to use Uganda as a massive massive uh, U.S. military base. So we've got bases all over Kampala, all over other parts of Uganda. Uh, many of these are, of course, not really reported on, or they're not they're not talked about. We hear a lot about this base in Djibouti, which is supposed to be the the head of Africom in Africa, and, and and we're always told in the media, oh, it's this little tiny country, this little tiny base. It's not very big. This is a complete lie. There are bases all over Africa. Uh, many of them are are built by groups like Halliburton and 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 other these sort of 
you know, military industrial complex uh, organizations. But essentially, Uganda acts as America's enforcer. So whatever America's agenda is in Africa, be it uh, oil, be it uh, terrorism, uh, whatever they, they need to stir up or, or use as a boogeyman, uh, Uganda essentially acts as their, their boots on the ground in, in, in Africa. So we see this, like I said, uh, in Sudan. We see this in Somalia. There are, you know, there are tons and tons of Ugandan troops under the guise of, you know, the African Union peacekeeping troops and things like that. But they're all over, and uh, we rely so heavily on Uganda that we even export Ugandan troops to places uh, like uh, Iraq and Afghanistan. So you can, you know, in Iraq there are thousands upon thousands of Ugandan troops that are acting more or less as mercenaries for the United States. But yeah, Uganda is 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 probably the the dominant uh, American military proxy force within Africa right now. Well, I know another area of conflict that you've covered quite a bit in your work is uh, in Mali, and of course the the recent northern Malian conflict. Um, what does that teach us about the ways that uh, that, for example, France and the other former colonial powers still operate in in the continent of Africa? Yeah, I think Mali is is uh, one of the more interesting countries, in part because it's not uh, like everything else; it's not very well understood whatsoever. But in Mali, it really kind of uh, you know, allegedly came out of nowhere. Oh my God, how, how could this happen? But uh, yeah, no, Mali, I think, is a great textbook example of the kind of things that went on in, in Uganda and Rwanda and, and all over. But yeah, basically, we have uh, a, a fairly stable country for the most part, relatively uh, economically secure. Of course, this again is kind of phony as a lot of this is being propped up by groups like the IMF and the World Bank and all sorts of financial institutions but essentially economically stable and we saw the uh, the the former president Amadou Toumane Touré was on his way out but he was fairly well liked and in the aftermath of the NATO war in Libya we saw this influx of the Tuareg people who live in the the north of Mali in what they call the Azawad and they are uh, an ethnic group in Mali. Uh, they they have long been been persecuted and have fought for independence over what they they see as a, a country that they have ruled for. You know, I mean, way way before the the borders of Mali were ever constructed. But we see them flooding out of Libya, where they did have refuge, and going into Mali and essentially trying to exert their power and influence over Mali. Now. This was used as a pretext for a man uh, by the name of Sanogo, who at the time of the overthrow of Torre was a, a, a colonel, I believe. And uh, Amadou Chumane Torre, uh, as I said, was on his way out. There were elections to be held in a few months, and Sanogo just couldn't stand for this. And he used the influx of fighters in the Azawad as a pretext for him to implement a coup. And he essentially overthrew uh, the government of Amadou Toumane Touré, said that he was going to be much tougher on the Touareg people. He was going to put a stop to all of this violence that was going on up there. And, uh, of course, uh, Sanogo was trained in the United States, just like uh, Paul was trained um, at Fort Leavenworth. John Garang in uh, Sudan was trained in the School of the Americas. Uh, and a lot of these people all come to America to learn 
psychological operations, uh, you know, assassination techniques, things like that. But we got Sonogo, who overthrows the government, comes into power, says he's going to clamp down on the these awful Tuareg who are, are you know, wrecking havoc all over. And lo and behold, suddenly Al Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb becomes this massive, massive force. You know, now they had always operated there. Uh, they, and they 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 were in Mali. I, you know, I don't doubt that. But for the most part, we're talking about uh, you know one of again one of these sort of Al Qaeda franchises where their real money was made through things like cocaine um, and arms trafficking up through countries in West Africa and then up through Mali, uh, through North Africa and then into Europe. They did kidnap uh, French tourists and things like that, but they, for the most part, were um, pretty small. And at the time, the Tuareg people, uh, you know, they were not concerned with Al Qaeda. They, they did not like Al Qaeda. Uh, Tuaregs, traditionally, the movement in the Azawad has been a secular movement. They have not, uh, you know, you know, uh, gone down the road of radical Islamic extremism. But, of course, suddenly there is this huge movement in the, in the uh, Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb. And then, of course, this gives France the pretext to say, oh, well, we've, we've got to go in right away and help, uh, you know, our, our Malian brotherhood, uh, who, you know, we, they have been oppressing for as, as long as you can remember in Africa in terms of European colonialism. But then we've got France coming in and essentially trying to stop Al-Qaeda from growing any more powerful. Um, and then, of course, we start to see the stories coming out. Then uh, as soon as the French troops arrive, we've got French firms flying in to look at the uranium deposits, to start setting up plans to build more mines so they can mine uranium. And France is, is uh, one of the, uh, much of uh, France's, uh, you know, power system, power grid is based around uranium and based around nuclear production. So it, it's no surprise that they, they decided to pick Mali. But as I said, this is really the kind of the, this is the formula for how these, these groups operate. So we get uh, the Tuareg who essentially are trying to fight for what they see as their independence. And I wouldn't really, you know, say that the Tuareg are, are, are more violent or, or more brutal than any other group, but they... Uh, do have something of a track record and do have a history of ruling in the Azawad, but they're painted as the bad guy, the same way that the Hutu were. And then we get the uh, the groups like we get Al Qaeda coming in, and this is similar to groups that we saw in Congo, like the the FDLR or the Interhamwe, the these vicious or the LRA, which of course you mentioned before, Coney. This is a great boogeyman. Uh, you know, you, you never know where this guy is, if he is even alive anymore, much like, um, you know, a lot of these characters in Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb. But so then you get them. And then, of course, this is excellent. And the, you know, people in America and in the West eat this up and they are just shocked. Oh, my God, they're implementing Sharia law all over the place. Uh, of course, they're implementing Sharia law in these small towns where no one wants to practice Sharia law. And, uh, you know, there are definitely people that are fighting against this, but that, that gets missed. And so then you get France coming in. You get a Western power that comes in, and they're able to essentially, you know, retake over the country. And that is what France is doing in Mali right now. Those troops will never leave Mali. They will be there in some capacity. Uh, you've also got French intelligence all over the place. 
And, uh, you know, all along, uh, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if some story comes out uh, later on that they, you know, let Al-Qaeda do this and that and that they, you know, they were using them. I mean, this is, this is textbook. This is what always happens in these countries. But essentially, yeah, Mali is a great example of the kind of template that is used and it's not that difficult to start breaking it down. You've just got to kind of read between the lines. So when you get a man who studies in America and then flies back to his African country and then suddenly overthrows the country because the, the, the president who was about to step down wasn't doing enough, I mean this is, this is not really how uh, dem democratic countries operate. Uh, you know, despite what we may say here. That's right. And of course, that brings up shades of the, the Egyptian revolution and what happened there as well and the outside interests that were at play there. I mean, it does seem that so much of this is following some sort of textbook example, as you say, and it, it's kind of frustrating to, to see how similar this is time and time again, that they, uh, they, they use the back of these conflicts, whether real or ones that they themselves have fostered and created mm. in order to justify, you know, their presence in order to continue with the resource extraction. Um, it, it seems just that it plays itself out again and again. And uh, I, I mean, it, fundamentally, is this particularly any different than what happens in any other part of the globe? Or is this just, uh, you know, just a, a, a sort of local implementation of that kind of grander strategy? No, I think, I mean, I think uh, this is generally the, the kind of formula that uh, Western imperialist powers have used all over the place. I mean, it, you know, it might differ a little bit here and there, but essentially, no, I mean, you've got, uh, you know, CIA, you've got big multinational corporations coming in and helping to fund, uh, you know, rebel movements. And they, they always start off as, as, you know, rebel movements and freedom fighting movements. And then, you know, if a small faction of that decides that, well, we want to, you know, go off and, and do our own thing, much like Al-Qaeda and the Mujahideen, uh, then, well, you know, it, it's an added benefit because then, of course, uh, that gives you, more, you know, more justification to go in. But I don't, I don't think that Africa is really any different than other conflicts. I think that it's just, uh, you know, uh, sadly, people care less about what's going on in Africa. And when they do care, it's only in the kind of Coney 2012 and this very... Uh, you know, like white liberal progressive sort of a sense, and, and that that is that is how they care. So if it means you know buying a bracelet and a poster to paste up and and tell you you know uh, yeah let's stick it to Coney, this is going to get him. That's that's generally the response. This very kind of fake um, you know like something on Facebook and you're going to save uh, you're going to stop uh, 10 million people from dying in Congo. So. <laughs> there, there is this very patronizing, paternalistic sense that a lot of people have, mm. even the good, well-meaning, progressive liberal types who, who think mm. that they're going to, you know, as you say, buy a poster or a keychain key <laughs> or something and save Africa. And, uh, and I think that that is definitely part of the strategy itself. I mean, I think the, uh, the people who are puppeteering mm. this know that, that people have that type of reaction and will play into it at, at certain key times. Um, it really raises for me the question of how do we parse the different groups that are involved in this? Um, there are at least, I mean, at least two different factions that you could posit, which would be, I guess, roughly speaking, the West and China. But I think it's much more, more complicated than that even. Uh, uh, even within the West, I mean, you have different players. You have the French, who I think have their own interests compared to the, uh, the Americans with their AFRICOM interests. Mm. And you have the multinational corporations, which I'm not sure fall neatly into the, the national categories either. You have, I mean... 
Apple's iPhone, for example, depends mm. on the extraction of the, the three T's from Congo, tin, tungsten, and tantalum, or whatever it is. I mean, just uh, there's so much of the resource game that's being played by the multinational corporations. To what extent do these players interact with each other? To what extent do they coincide or, or compete with each other for Africa? Mm. I think uh, at the end of the day, when we're talking about these... Uh, when we're when we at the end of the day, they're all essentially in the same clubs. All of these these groups, um, you know, they they all go to things like Davos or or any you know anything like that. So at the end of the day, they're all essentially working towards the same ultimate goal. So you know, you're talking about multinational corporations now. Who funds the political campaigns of you know Obama? It's the same companies that are deeply involved in Africa. So on one level, they are all sort of mixed together. There is no separating them. Now you can break that down, and of course, there are competing uh, factions within the West, as you were saying, like France, states. And it's important to remember that for a you know a brief period, uh, France and the United States were essentially fighting one another in Rwanda during the genocide. Now this wasn't too overt, and this wasn't to the point that there were French troops fighting American troops, although there certainly were lots of U.S. troops and U.S. mercenaries in Rwanda during the genocide, helping with the genocide. But yes, on, on one level, you do have uh, different Western powers competing. And of course, you know, we saw with, with Rwanda, we could take that as an example, the United States essentially saying, well, France, you've got to go because we want this now and this is going to be our colony this is going to be our base of operation and France uh, you know more or less said okay uh, but with the the knowledge that in the end we're still going to make money off of this we're still going to be you know using the same gold mines we're still going to be taking diamonds out we're still going to be making iPhones with, with coltan uh, but, uh, you know, and now again, you kind of see France exerting itself once again. Like I said, in Mali, getting very involved um, in the Ivory Coast, which is uh, another country that is just uh, barely understood. And that was the, I would categorize as the first in this new sort of uh, imperialism in Africa that started up. Uh, you know, Ivory Coast was the first of these uh, independent countries in Africa to fall uh, and then we've got Mali, then we have Libya, then we've got, uh, you know, uh, Central African Republic right now, which again is deeply, the French are deeply involved in. So yes, on one level you have competing forces and, you know, um, like you said, AFRICOM, I mean, they definitely have a different agenda than the French. I don't, I think, uh, you know, again, on some level this is about natural resources and this is about uh, pleasing the paymasters of, of of political groups, but on another level, Africom it also seems to be kind of dead set on some sort of a a war with China. I, I don't think you can dismiss that and just all unto itself. Uh, and you know, and Africom just seems concerned with building more and more bases. Uh, so of course, I, I don't if that agenda fully realized here uh, what that really ultimately means. Uh, I mean, there, there's got to be more than just building bases everywhere. There's got to be some sort of end game to this. Now, what that is, I'm not exactly sure, but part of it certainly is fighting China in, in, in some way. Um, and I mean, this is pure speculation, but I mean, it, it, and I don't think it would happen, but you could get, you could see something uh, the way we, we did with Russia and, and perhaps China could get, you know, mired down in some sort of conflict um, Sudan seems the most likely, 
and that is the that is the biggest African country that the West has been trying to topple, and China is is deeply involved in in Sudan economically, uh, mostly, um, and you know, and then that is the one that it always goes back Darfur, Darfur. We've got to stop the genocide in Darfur. Um, you know, of course, missing out on the fact that Darfur is rich in oil, in uranium, and most importantly, perhaps in gum arabic, which is uh, used in in Coca-Cola, it's used in uh, ice cream like Ben and Jerry's, and every, basically, uh, you know, so much of the uh, you know confectioner products are based upon gum arabic, and uh, and this is of course ignored when people are talking about you know we've got to save Darfur by all by all means, um, and uh, just to kind of go off a little bit on a tangent there, we also you know you, you here in America at least. Uh, anyone who's familiar with people like uh, Senator Menendez in New Jersey, and you've also got Donald Payne Jr., who is the the son of Donald Payne. It's another guy from New Jersey. Uh, both of these people are deeply, deeply involved in uh, Darfur and in the genocide there. And every time something in the news happens about Darfur, you'll get one of these two people in New Jersey writing up some bill that we've got to stop the genocide in Darfur. Well, New Jersey is the state that... Uh, 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 manufactures or, or, you know, basically takes gum Arabic from places like Darfur and then converts it and then sells it to Pepsi and Coke and all these countries, uh, corporations. So, uh, you know, it's it's no surprise that these, you know, two random people in uh, the in Congress are so concerned with uh, the plight of the people in Darfur, which is not to say that there are bad things going on there. But again, this is like Rwanda, this is situation. This isn't really an Arab versus black uh, scenario, which is is what we're we're painted here. And again, of course, it's the evil Arabs and uh, you know the the black Africans who are being oppressed. And it's a lot different than that. And also, like Rwanda, you've got groups like the SPLA going in and butchering black families and then blaming it on the Janjaweed. Uh, and there is some speculation and evidence that uh, factions within the SPLA are even funding the Janjaweed or allowing them to get weapons, uh, further fueling all of this violence. And, of course, uh, George Clooney of the CFR also always uh, yeah. making an appearance <laughs> when it comes to uh, oh, Darfur. Yeah. yeah, it is interesting to see the players that work there and to see the, the, the sort of agenda behind that. And it does seem like a type of... If not uh, genocide as as uh, Cassus Belli, at least genocide as Cassus revolution or change in government or, or puppet yeah. installation of puppet government, which we see time and again and is working in Sudan. And perhaps I'm glad you brought that up because I was going to bring up China's role in the continent. And I think Sudan is kind of the, 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 the Lexus or no, focal point for that um, in, and, and what we've seen in the last several years there with the creation of South Sudan clearly an attempt to to sort of undermine what uh, China, chi the ties that China has made to the Su Sudanese government. Let's talk a little bit about China's role in this. Um, what what role do they play in the continent? And is it markedly different than what's happening um, on the Western side of things? Yeah, I, I think, and that's a great question to pose it to, is it, is it all that different? Because there is a kind of a bit of a knee-jerk reaction, especially in the, the alternative media community, to sort of paint the actions of China in Africa as somehow benevolent. And that, that's unfortunately just a, you know, if you're, if you're against the, the Western imperialism, then you must be in favor of Russia or China or any of these other large superpowers. But I'll, and I'll get back to that in a minute. But 
basically we've got China coming in and China is, you know, a, a burgeoning power, economic powerhouse, and uh, they want to expand. And they essentially are going in and they're offering very lucrative deals to the various governments in Africa. And we can look at Omar al-Bashir in Sudan. And China goes in and says, essentially, well, hey, look, we want what you got here, and we're willing to pay for it. We'll, we'll pay very well for it, and we'll even build all the infrastructure that's needed to produce this. Uh, we will build the roads, we will build the factories, we will build the you know the local shops that are going to pop up around these uh, you know mining facilities and whatnot. Uh, now, on the the kind of nice side of this, China then says you know and keep it. Once we're done, this is all yours, and you can do with it what you like. But you've got all this infrastructure, and you know we're talking about China investing in countries in Africa that don't necessarily have the best infrastructure on the planet. So this is seen as pretty good. And, you know, more or less, China is very upfront about what they want. You know, they, they want oil and they're going to go in, they'll get the oil. But like I said, you know, they'll pay for it and they, they won't. Uh, the biggest thing is China won't interfere in whatever the internal politics are of that particular country. So China is not going to get involved in the political machinations of whatever Omar al-Bashir is going through, and he will leave them alone. Um, now, uh, you know, and, and to the, the flip side of this, of course, is the U.S. Uh, coming in and saying, you know, with AFRICOM and offering them only military bases, only offering them aid in the form of building up these militaries, and that's it, and there's nothing else. And essentially, you know, America's saying, and if you don't really then you might, you know, run into a problem like Gaddafi did, like, uh, you know, uh, Laurent Bagbo in Ivory Coast, uh, any of these countries. So, yeah, I mean, that is more or less what China is doing. Now, again, like I said, I don't, you know, China is out to make money and China is, you know, is fine with doing that. And I don't know if that's necessarily a good or a bad thing per se. I think it's it's a little bit more, you know, complicated, but it's not as if China is is this wonderful, you know, place. And again, we also see uh, little, you know, Chinese uh, expat communities popping up in Africa. And a lot of Africans are not super excited about this because, you know, we see like, a you know, there's a Chinatown in almost any African country you can think of. You can go to uh, Sudan, definitely. You can go to um, in West Africa; they're everywhere. Um, uh, and I can't think of the country off the top of my head right now. But there's a massive, massive Chinatown in West Africa, a French-speaking country, and I am just blanking on it right now. Hopefully, it'll come back to me. Uh, but there is a you know, and a lot of these these Chinese, you know, these African Chinatowns that pop up. You know, you've got you know, all Chinese expats living there. You've got them importing Chinese-made goods. So you're, they're getting things like shoes for super cheap, and then they're able to then sell that. Now that puts out a lot of other, you know, African businesses out of a job. So it's not it's not super, uh, you know, China good, America bad. But uh, either way, the U.S. does not want this going on. They don't want China there. And... Also, on a, on a bigger level, the United States doesn't want China building Africa up, like I said, through infrastructure. They don't ever want uh, Africa to rise to the kind of power that it could. I mean, you're talking about a country with just, I mean, beyond wealthy in terms of natural resources, um, not to mention culture, I mean, you know, history, everything. But 
they don't want that to happen. So, like I said, instead, what America will offer is lots and lots of money, lots and lots of weapons, and they will prop up these various dictators all over the place, uh, and they will allow them to do brutal and horrible things. Now, again, you know, someone could say, well, that isn't that what China is doing in Sudan. And to a degree, that is right. Uh, you know, certainly they, they don't really um, but again, you're also coming at it from the angle that Bashir is committing genocide, which is that is not really the case. And it's much more complicated than that. So to kind of paint with these very broad strokes that this is horrible, how could China do this? While at the same time, of course, I mean, America is propping up, uh, you know, the most brutal dictators in, in Uganda, in Rwanda, in Burundi, especially in Ethiopia. Uh, I mean, Zanawi is the former president is now dead, but I mean, this is a man who has just, I mean, talk about genocide. I mean, everywhere in that country, he has, uh, you know, I mean, destroyed entire populations of people. So, you know, is it all that different? Not at all. And, uh, you know, you can't really count bodies in genocide. I think that's that's very stupid and silly. But certainly America is behind a lot more of the atrocities that are going on in Africa than China is. And again, that's that's kind of subjective. But like I said, it's a much more complicated picture. It's not that easy. Um, but yeah, I mean, I mean, China is there, and and America is there, and I I definitely foresee some sort of a, an issue going on. And uh, I mean, we can look to places like Kenya and the Westgate Mall attack, um, and the, the you know very odd odd. Uh, chain of events that went into that and what really was going on there and you've got all sorts of you know CIA and MI6 kind of spies running all around there and again China is deeply invested in certain aspects of Kenya's economy so you know is it a is it really a you know out of nowhere that this you know brutal attack happens in a mall I don't think so uh, and, you know, this is kind of part of the whole plan uh, for America or for Africa in America's, you know, playbook is low intensity warfare. And, and that's what we see popping up time and time again. And this, of course, disrupts China's uh, you know, economic gain. Absolutely. Well, I think it's interesting to look also at what happened in Libya as as uh, as it pertains to Chinese investments in Libya and some of the, uh, the first oh, yeah people that were being targeted were Chinese uh, oil corporations. So interesting to see that uh, that play out. I, I think there is definitely a complicated game that's being played right now. And uh, and uh, insofar as there is a PR battle, I would say China's probably winning. I mean, their $200 million uh, donation of the uh, African Union headquarters in Addis Ababa, I mean, they are, they are buying the hearts and minds of a lot of Africans right now. And although hmm. it's not quite that simple, I think that uh, they are still well ahead of America in, in terms of that. Um, well, uh, Pierce, there's so much we could talk about and, and probably too much to possibly encapsulate in a conversation like this, but uh, but we've touched on a lot of different aspects of what's happening in Africa. I guess my final question for you would be, what what do you foresee coming down the pipe next? What is the next uh, next interesting area that you, you, you're going to be looking at in your own work? Yeah, um, I definitely think Kenya is is still uh, there's a lot going on in Kenya right now. Um, I, you know, I, I I I talked about the Westgate thing, and I've, I've been trying to stay up on that and and what's going on. But we've got Kenya uh, implementing these really, you know, just insane draconian anti-terror laws. They're rounding up. Uh, I mean, possibly tens of thousands of people. They uh, they recently shut down an entire stadium. 
uh, and wouldn't let anyone leave for, I think, several days until they were able to check that everyone wasn't a terrorist or a member of Al-Shabaab or something, you know, something like that. Um, so I would definitely, you know, keep keep up with uh, Kenya. They've they've also arrested a lot of these these so-called, uh, you know, radical imams and things like that. Um, yeah, no, Kenya. Uh, definitely, what's going on with France all over uh, Central African Republic? Uh, it's another one of these these countries that just, I mean, people don't even. It sound doesn't sound like a country. It sounds like a a geographical location. But Central African Republic is supposedly where Joseph Kony and the LRA are headquartered and they they recently arrested you know uh, the the second in command of the LRA like that even matters you know they'll just replace him with some other guy it, you know it, it's totally meaningless but uh yes central african republic is also huge amounts of uranium all over that country and france is is i mean all over it just everywhere with intelligence operatives with uh, military um, so yeah, those and and of course, I mean, Congo is is always is always a country to look to, um, be, just because it, it's it. I mean, that is really the 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 center of where this kind of bloodshed is going on, and you're talking about every single corporation is in Congo. Every country from America to the United States to Israel to uh, Great Britain to China, to France, uh, I mean, name a country, Canada is uh, your, uh, your, your hometown. Canada is deeply, deeply involved in, in mining all over Congo, uh, particularly in gold and in diamonds as well. So yeah, and I, I would check to Congo, uh, and, and something is always going on there. You know, there, there's always, there's always an issue popping up. Um, but yeah, and then broadly speaking, uh, just, you know, check out for the few independent leaders that are left in Africa. Uh, you know, America and NATO have been very, very good uh, in the past couple of years of getting rid of all of them. So Gaddafi was probably the, the last sort of huge one besides uh, Robert Mugabe in Zimbabwe. And Zimbabwe is another one of these countries that, for whatever reason, were taught here in, in America and in the West Mugabe to despise Zimbabweans as as brutal, you know, uh, murderers and rapists and things like that. So you know, Zimbabwe is another one of these countries that has long been on the map, and also Sudan, of course. Um, like you said, I mean, we've got South Sudan coming up, and uh, you know, I, it's uh, you know, almost anywhere you can look in Africa, you can find a country that America is willing to uh, to get deeply involved in to overthrow the government. Uh, so you know, it, it, it's a it anywhere you could look, you, you'll find somebody. Sorry about that. I just got an emergency nope. call. I have to go get my son. So I oh, have to okay. go. Okay, well, yeah, all right. But it was a very interesting conversation. We're going to leave it there. I'm going to talk to you again in the near future. So thank you again for your yeah. time. And uh, I very much appreciate it. And I'm going to put the link in the show notes again for people to check out your podcast. So Pierce, thank you again for your time. Oh, absolutely, James. It was uh, an honor and a pleasure to talk to you. I can't wait to talk to you again. Thank you. Thank you.